As you're seated, we come to the preaching of God's Word as in John chapter 3, we return to our series on conversion, and in doing so, we turn to consider the great cause of conversion. Now, we've touched on this in a different way already, seeing that there is indeed grace required. The difference this afternoon is that we're looking more particularly at what that grace does, which proceeds and leads to conversion. So we look now at John 3 to a familiar passage, verses 3 through 8. We'll read from verse 1 to 8 for context. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Now hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born the Spirit. It's particularly verses 3-8 through that we'll consider And as we take up this series on conversion, we look ahead in the Lord's mercies next week to considering that aspect of conversion known as saving faith. And after that, repentance unto life. But before we do so, we wish to look more particularly at what God does in order that one may savingly believe and that one may repent unto life. And so what we see, as already indicated in our brief series thus far, is that it is God who gives repentance. It is God who gives faith. What Christ does before us is He states the same, but He shows a little more and shows us what it is that God does in order that one may believe, indeed that one can believe. So this week we look at what causes saving faith and what causes repentance unto life. Notice the text presents a question from Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of God's Word. He was one, as a Pharisee, who devoted himself to purity. And so, outwardly, he would have been a noble man. He would have been a respectable man. And indeed, he would have been esteemed a teacher of God's Word. And so he comes to him by night. There is an aspect perhaps here of fear, but we ought not to forget that particularly the Pharisees made use of the night for study. And so perhaps there's something here of his prioritizing the importance. But whatever the case, the text presents to us his coming to Christ with an acknowledgement. Notice the acknowledgement in verse 2. He says, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, For no man 
can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He's bringing honor to Christ. But just as Christ refused Satan, so he isn't one, even out of good intentions, to settle for a right word of honor. He sees the main thing. And so he brings to Nicodemus almost in a startling fashion. It doesn't make sense, does it? Nicodemus comes and says, we know you're a teacher sent from God. We realize the things you're doing, no man can do except God be with him. And he says, think of the response to that. Verily, verily, truly, truly, hand held up as it were, saying, I'm telling the truth solemnly in your presence. I say unto thee, Nicodemus, you in particular, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Surely this must have startled Nicodemus. And we see something of that. He's caught off guard. And he asks, how can a man be born when he's old? Right? You hear the word born, and naturally you think of natural birth. And this is what Nicodemus understands. So Christ comes with the greatest of solemnity. He makes a statement that except, that is, unless this happens, there's no hope of the kingdom of God in that person's life. Nicodemus stumbles at that. How can man be born when he's old? Christ doesn't, as it were, cater to Nicodemus' ignorance, but he emphasizes this point. And he says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're missing the point. You need to realize that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is physical is physical. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You have need of spiritual birth. Don't wonder at this that I said you must be born again. He says, look, you know the wind, it blows where it listeth, that is where it desires. You hear its sound, you can't tell where it's coming from, where it's going. And that's what it's like for everyone that's born of the Spirit. You can't control the Spirit. You can't funnel the Spirit. You can't say, I know it's going to come at this point and go there. You think in our own existence, experience, there was some understanding of this hurricane that was coming to Florida, and yet it was imprecise in its forecast. And so what actually ended up happening was different than what was particularly foretold. We don't mean by that we shouldn't heed the warnings of meteorologists, but we mean this, that man at his scientific advanced state cannot with clear accuracy say this is when the wind's coming, this is its exact way it's going, this is precisely what's going to happen. Even with all of our scientific advancement, we don't have the ability so with clarity to predict all of those things. And Jesus says, that's how it is with the Spirit. You can't say this is going to happen. You can't tell when it's going to happen because the Spirit is sovereign. The Spirit is the one who comes and all you can do is see the effect. So you see the wind, its effect. When the leaves flutter, when the branches move, when trees break, you see the effect of it. But you don't actually see the wind. Well, so it is with the Spirit, Christ says to Nicodemus. Well, what's his point in all of this? Notice those two particular verses, five, or 3 and 5. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the Greek is just as the English. It's not saying he may not. He doesn't have permission. It's saying he cannot. He doesn't have the ability. He doesn't have within him what is needed in order to see and enter into the kingdom of God. That means man in his natural state is without ability to trust in and enter in to understand and take up the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's required? It's that the Holy Spirit would give life unto the soul that then he would be able to see spiritually and embrace the promises held forth. It's no uh, coincidence that so soon as Christ asserts the truth of the sovereign work of the Spirit and effectual calling and regeneration, that he then goes on, as you're well familiar, to assert the truth that any who come and believe upon Christ shall be saved with such clarity. And so notice this order. One, in order to see and understand and embrace the truth, must first have the Spirit work within him. And once that's done, then he can see and embrace the truth with saving faith. John 3.14 and following. Well, this afternoon we particularly want to look at our passage as it teaches that sinners are only able to believe the Gospel as the Spirit gives them life. Now this is an intense moment because he's saying this to a teacher of Israel. He's saying this to a Pharisee, to a circumcised Jew, to a covenant member, to a teacher of the covenant. He's saying this to one who's commended Christ. He's saying this to one who's wanting to learn of Christ. And he's saying, notice so directly, I say unto thee, right? In the Old English, it's representing the Greek. It's not just I'm saying generally to everyone, but Nicodemus, I'm saying to you specifically that just as any man must be born again, you must be born again. So it's not being born in the covenant. It's not being a teacher of the law. It's not having the sacraments applied to us that enables us to believe, that makes us believers. There is a sovereign work of the Spirit required that would enable our souls to understand and to embrace the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, for instance, other passages that speak to the same truth. 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. You'll notice that Paul takes this up when he says, for instance, in verse 10, when he's saying what the world can't know by its wisdom, by its power, notice in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. So the Spirit must work. Notice in Ephesians in chapter 1, there at verse 17 and 18, Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you 
the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and so on. We read earlier in Deuteronomy 30 that Christ or God would circumcise the foreskin of our hearts. Notice in Ezekiel chapter 11 and there at verse 19, a similar statement which will be intensified later in his prophecy, Ezekiel 11 and verse 19. God says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them the heart and heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 36 as well. Just as one final example of the same that we could multiply instances. Ezekiel 36. And notice there at verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, if you remember, we're talking of conversion. Conversion, as we've indicated from the scripture, is a transformation, a turning from sin unto God. It includes repentance, but it likewise includes faith. What we see here in the passage before us and in the other passages mentioned is that none of that is even possible without the work of the Spirit giving life. This is what is known as the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth. And so we wish to consider this truth by looking at three things. Firstly, man's inability. Secondly, the Spirit's work. And thirdly, the Spirit's sovereignty, all of which we hope by God's blessing would make us see how desperately we need God's grace as well as if ever we've trusted in Christ, it is because God has been pleased to be gracious to us. Well, firstly then, man's inability. It seems to be in our culture one of the worst insults to tell someone you can't do it. Not merely you may not do it, you don't have permission, but you cannot. So we get silly t-shirts today that says something like, impossible is nothing. It is a ridiculous notion in our world that says men can do anything. Everything's possible. It's simply an outright denial of the truth. There are some things that are so patently obvious that man can't do. Man can't, of his own ability, fly. That's not something that we should lament. It's something we simply need to acknowledge. But our culture today is so against the notion of any limitation put upon man that it is more willing to assert not only the absurd, but the obscene. And so this is where you get all sorts of wickedness as well. Well, a man can't be a woman. And then our generation says, well, let's see if we can change that. You know, marriage cannot be between a man and another man. And our culture says, well, let's see if we can change that. And you see all of this wickedness of what's going on. And all of this has to do with a resistance to boundaries 
and limitations. Now, this is obvious in some realms, but what's astounding is in places of the church today, there is a rejection of one of the key features of man's inability, which Christ clearly asserts. Man cannot convert himself. Man cannot of himself understand the gospel. Man cannot of himself believe the gospel. It is utterly, completely, and entirely impossible for man to do it. We assert that because Christ teaches it. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice what's being said is not that he doesn't have mental faculties and abilities to think, because he's not talking about mere intellectual and academic understanding, but rather he's talking about that spiritual reality in us, not just to understand the form of words and assent to the form of words, but as it were with the whole of our being to acknowledge the same and to own it as ours. So notice he says, man cannot see the kingdom of God. Now obviously he's not speaking about what we might call a physical seeing because the kingdom of God is invisible as to its essence, though it transforms men and so on. But he helps clarify when in verse 5 he says he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We read in the Lord's Providence, Matthew 4, what was it Christ went preaching? He went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so Christ goes and he preaches the good news. I've come to give you life. I've come to forgive your sins. Here's the way of forgiveness and reconciliation and peace. And though he's clear, though he's very plain and even redundant in his preaching, yet what Christ is acknowledging is this. However clear one may be, however fervent one may be, however reasonable one may be, however zealous one may be, however frequent one may be, when it is left with man, it is impossible for them spiritually to understand it, to grasp it, and to enter into it. Why is that? Well, it's because man is spiritually dead. He's not spiritually wounded. He's not spiritually on life support. He's not hooked up to a spiritual ventilator. He is a spiritual corpse. No life. This is true of everyone who is outside of Christ. John's Gospel has already introduced this to us in a different way. So for instance, in John's Gospel chapter 1, it speaks of the Word of God, which is Christ, who came unto His own, verse 11, and His own received Him not. And then notice, it introduces the new birth because it says in verse 12, as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. So you'll notice that here, the testimony of those that believe upon Christ is that they believe upon Christ because they are born of God and enabled to believe. Now, we're told that men would not come to Him, though He is the light which shines, because it is men love darkness rather than light. And so again and again, the Scripture is asserting this very truth that it is that men in their sin love their sin. They may acknowledge rational truths regarding the Bible. They may even be impressed with the miraculous works of Christ and the consistency of biblical doctrine. But when it comes to the spiritual engagement of their soul with the truth, they cannot grasp it. They cannot make sense of it. A brother shared a passage this afternoon in conversation of one who stumbled at the stumbling block. The Jews had a stumbling block. The Christ was preached to them, but they couldn't understand it was by grace through faith. They spiritually were blinded as we considered in previous times together. There's a veil still over the understanding of their hearts that in the preaching of the Word, they're blinded. They can't see the way to enter in because embedded deeply with every fallen sinner is this thought, what do I need to do in order to attain unto heaven? What price do I need to pay? What contribution do I need to make? What aspect of work do I need to perform so I can go in? But the Gospel is good news which comes and says, you don't understand. You can't do a thing and you are forbidden of doing anything because nothing that you do would ever amount to what is needed for your salvation. Here's the good news. What you can't do, Christ does. And He says, come freely. Embrace Me without bringing a price, without bringing any contribution. Come with emptiness and let Me be all. Now notice, that's so clear in the Scriptures. Isaiah 55, you have it in Matthew 10, you have it in John 6 and elsewhere, where it's so clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, you that are hungry and thirsty, you have no money, come by wine, come without money, without price. Christ again and again is making this appeal. And yet man stumbles at it. Why is that? It's because their spiritual eyes don't work. They don't see the way of entrance. A blind man in this life has better chance of stumbling upon the lone entrance to a building by stumbling around in his blindness than the dead sinner does in stumbling upon the way of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Because not only is his spiritual inability such that he can't see, But left to himself, he is opposed to the way of life. Men love darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They want that to continue. They love, whether in egregious ways or less heinous ways, they love their sin and they have no ability to liberate themselves from it. It's later in this Gospel that Christ will say, if the Son shall make you free ye shall be free indeed. And the Jews respond, what are you talking about? 
We're not enslaved to any man. We've not been born of fornication. We have a good heritage, a good pedigree. We are not enslaved. And Christ says, the one that sins is enslaved to his sin. And he's exposing them. I'm the way of life and freedom. You're in bondage to sin. And they refuse him there. You see, again and again, there's this testimony, spiritual inability, and not only inability, but spiritual contrariety to the way of salvation. Notice before we move on that this is universal to all men. So Christ speaks specifically to Nicodemus, but He uses a general term in doing so. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is a way in an individualized manner to express a universal truth. So we can say this in a specific way that applies to all men. Except a man eat, he will grow hungry and die of starvation. Now we're saying that you'll notice of a man, but we're saying it in such a way that it applies to all men, right? If any man doesn't eat, he'll starve and die. Well, notice what Christ is saying to Nicodemus. He's not just saying, Nicodemus, you're in need of being born again. He's saying, though you stand in need of this, all men stand in need of this. Except a man, any man whatsoever is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the spiritual inability that man possesses is a universal spiritual inability. Every man possesses it. This should trigger something in your mind. You are unable of yourself to see and enter into the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus would have felt that to some extent. And praise God, we see at the end of the Gospel account that Nicodemus comes out of his uh, stance and publicly affirms Christ, assisting Joseph of Arimathea with the removal of Christ's body and becoming, as it were, a public disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is this. What Christ is saying to Nicodemus in a general way of all men, He's saying to Nicodemus. But that by implication means He's saying it to us. If we aren't born again, let's put that more specific, if I'm not born again, we need to get that in our brain, in our hearts, by God's grace. If I'm not, then I have no ability to be converted. What that does is it actually raises the thing that our world despises. Because it says to all men everywhere, you don't have the ability to save yourself. And this is, of course, a truth that is opposed by godless men in every age. People want to be the captain of their souls. They want to be the boss of their lives. They want to be that which somehow contributes to their earthly good and certainly their spiritual good. On a flight, there was a man who professed Christ and in spite of attempts to persuade of him one thing regarding the Gospel, he returned again and again to this statement, well, my morals are better than others. 
I'm better than others, so I have hope for heaven. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, there's a seed of truth in that. True believers will have a sincere difference of life than others. But the ground of our assurance is not our doing. It is what Christ does to save us. And that should be the explicit first statement. But you see, here's the point. Unregenerate men have no ability to comprehend that. So you go door to door and you ask people, you know, questions like, you know, do you have confidence that you'll be in heaven? Or why is it that when you die, you have hope that God will receive you into heaven? And 90% of the time, if not more, it's some works-oriented righteousness. Well, I go to church. I've done this. I'm better than these people. I don't do those obscene things. You know, I've got my family pretty in order. I'm a diligent worker. I'm a faithful spouse. These are the things that come up. What is it saying to us? Well, if you could see, what you would see of their soul is they have no eyes. They can't see the way of heaven. They can't perceive the way of everlasting life. Even people who can sit down and recite these things, unless they're renewed by the Spirit, always revert back to a way of self-righteousness because they can't see the way of entrance and therefore they'll never enter in. Children, you know this quite well. If there's an entrance into a building, only one, you know then the only way to get into that building is by that entrance. And so people can be at a wall that has no entrance and say, I really hope this is a way. I hope this somehow opens up, but they'll be hoping in vain. But so soon as you discover where the door is, then you're able to enter in. Well, if you can't see that way, then you'll never enter in. And so what we're seeing here is man's inability, spiritual as it is, not mental, it's not just mental, it's spiritual, universal as it is, is an inability that if not rectified by grace, will lead to their hopeless future. Well, secondly, notice the Spirit's work. Christ says, except a man be born again. The Greek is such that it could be said born from above, both of which are fine translations and both point out the need to be born in a supernatural way. That's Christ's point. And so he clarifies that in verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Water was a universally recognized agent of cleansing and of the Spirit, of course, solidifies the point that is a supernatural spiritual birth that is needed in the Lord giving life to one dead. So the point here is that it is the Spirit of God who makes one spiritually alive. There was a book in the mid to late 1900s by a famed evangelical, How to Be Born Again. Never read the book. But it seems to me like there's a simple answer to that question. And there's only one answer to that question. How to be born again? The Spirit of God and His sovereignty must do it. Period. Now we can speak of means, and we'll speak of that in future sermons. There are means that we employ. We use the Word of God. We attend diligent preaching. We pray and so on. But none of that is the cause of our being born again. The way and the only way of being born again is that the Spirit of God 
comes with power to give life to one who's dead in their sins. This is what Christ is saying. If the Spirit doesn't work, there's no knowledge of and truth, and there's no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now it's this, of course, which should startle our souls for a few reasons. One is, the hope of our salvation is entirely outside of our hands. It's not in our hands. It's not within our realm. It's not within our ability. And moreover, whereas it's in the hands of God, remember this, it is in the hands of Him against whom we've sinned. The only remedy and hope that we have is that the God of heaven and earth against whom our sins have been committed, against whom they are infinitely detestable, they are reprehensible, they are more repugnant to God than anything we can imagine. It is with Him alone that this ability exists to save us. This should make us feel how difficult our situation is. It should also make us see how excellent it is that ever He's given life to any sinner. Let's put that in perspective. If God only saved one sinner ever, there would be the display of infinite wisdom, mercy, and grace. That He saves multitudes of sinners only displays the same with greater intensity. But if you've been saved, it is strictly and solely and entirely because God who had the right to condemn you and to punish you for your sins did that which only He could do at His own volition in saving you. The Spirit makes one spiritually alive. But this is where we see a connection. The Spirit who makes one alive makes one able to see and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, conversion is not the Spirit repenting within us. It's not the Spirit of God believing the Gospel for us. It's God giving life to our souls that we then may truly see and enter into the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, the relationship between the new birth or regeneration And conversion is this. The Spirit works sovereignly, gives life to the soul, so now that the soul sees and enters into the kingdom of heaven. Here's the relationship. Regeneration, the new birth, comes first. And that leads then to faith and repentance. So it's truly the sinner believing. It's truly the sinner repenting. But the only way he was able to do that is because God in His grace by His Spirit has worked graciously and miraculously to give life. Notice the Scripture. Except a man be born again, he cannot see. Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Then notice verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so it not only makes it possible it brings forth a happy issue of life. So some try to evade the force of this passage and they say, well, we get it. 
you know, man is dead in his sin, so he needs to be made alive so that he can choose Christ. All of that's true. But then they jettison the whole force of the Scripture and the meaning of the Bible, and they say, we therefore believe that here's the wonder of God's grace. He makes everyone born again and then leaves them to choose or not choose. The problem with that is multifold. It's overwhelmingly contrary to this passage because in theory what you have is a spiritually living person who now can see and enter in and says, well, though I'm alive, I want death. So that's a problem. Moreover, the force of verse 6 is the one who is born of the Spirit is now taking part of the Spirit and so does what the Spirit would have him do. This is why earlier in John chapter 1, when he says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So when one makes them born again, they then believe the gospel and come to faith. Notice what Christ will say in John chapter 6 and at verse 37. Related to this teaching, he says, All that the Father giveth me, what? Shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last stage. On 17, you could look at the prayer of Christ. All the Father gives will come. All of these things are certain. Here's the point. The Spirit never fails in His purpose. When He gives life, the one He gives life to shall come unfailingly. And yet, He comes most willingly. He's not coming against His will because the Spirit has transformed His will. This is Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, John chapter 3, and elsewhere. He's transformed the heart. He's removed the heart of stone. He's placed within a living heart so that now He wants God. He wants life. He wants Christ. And His eyes can now see and He's inclined now to draw near and embrace the truth of Christ as is made known in the Scripture. So the Spirit makes one spiritually alive, and in making one spiritually alive, causes the one now willingly and gladly to receive Christ as offered in the Gospel. This is the Spirit's work. It's not the Spirit's work, as it were, that the Spirit believes for us, or repents for us. It's the Spirit's work that He transforms and plants life in our soul and renews us so that we truly are the ones believing now upon Christ, repenting of our sins, and are converted. But all of that comes because the Spirit worked first. So you can think of it this way, children. You have this question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? It's a silly question for Bible believers because we realize God created all things, right? So He creates chickens, eggs follow, and so on. Which came first, you know, uh, a baby or a man? Well, a man came first, according to the order of Scripture. But we can say this, which comes first? The belief or the Spirit's work? 
And what Christ is telling us is there's no belief unless the Spirit works first. And where the Spirit works, there will be belief. Right? So the Spirit works and leads us to trust. Well, thirdly then, the Spirit's sovereignty. It's astounding how clearly the Scriptures assert this. He's ever, as it were, taking salvation outside of our hands. And He's saying your only hope is in God alone. So notice what He says. John chapter 3, He's asserted the need for the new birth, birth from above. He says with great clarity, verse 7, ye must be born again. It's not optional. It's not for a higher life, a more faithful Christian life. It is essential, necessary, if there's ever to be any salvation. And then he says, verse 8, the wind blows where it listeth, where it desires. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and where it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Just as you can't control the wind, but you see its effects, what's Christ saying? Neither can you control the Spirit. You can only see His effects. And isn't this true? For instance, in our own experience, all of us will have the experience, for instance, of seeing one who is a sworn enemy of the Lord in a church service and seeing one who is rather moral and upstanding They both hear the same sermon. And if you and I were, as it were, betting men, we would have said, we're pretty sure that this moral man who shows concern is going to be converted. And yet, behold, it's the wicked one who's brought to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because the Spirit decided, in accordance to the eternal counsel of Father, Son, and Spirit, to draw that one to Christ at that time. What's the point? The Spirit determines to whom He'll give life. This is all in accordance to the eternal counsel before the heavens and the earth were made, Father, Son, and Spirit, determining who should be saved and when they should be saved. But the Spirit, as it were, works according to that sovereign will. It is not, as Paul says, quoting from the Scriptures in Romans 9, it's not to Him that wills or runs but it is according to God who has mercy. Whom He will, He has mercy and saves. Whom He will, He hardens. This is what's acting out when the Spirit is at work. He's working according to the sovereign will of God to save those whom He will save. Think of it this way. If you were at the stoning of Stephen and you step back and look at the scene, you would have seen some people with tears in their eyes. You would have seen the confusion, the angst that others felt. But you would have seen Saul of Tarsus approving these things with delight that Stephen was being put to death. You would never have thought, that's the man that the Spirit's going to work in and bring him to faith. There would have been no reason to think that. There would have been only reason for us to say, surely that man is done for. He's sitting there approving of the martyrdom of the servant of the Lord. And yet in the Lord's sovereignty, He had already appointed that on His way to go and attack more Christians, the Spirit of God should work by the Word and ministry of Christ and convert Saul to trust in the Lord Jesus and follow Him all His days. Go to the Temple Mount, various pagan cities. 
And you can see all of the unspeakable wickedness that were done between worshiper and so-called priestess and all of their illicit behavior. And you would have said, there's no chance. These people are bowing down to idols. They're joining themselves in the most repugnant behavior that we can imagine. Some of them are offering up children for sacrifice. No chance. And then you revisit Thessalonica and what do you see? The Word of God came, but it didn't come in Word only. It came in power and the Spirit so that they were regenerated and they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and repented. They were converted because the Spirit worked within their lives. The Spirit works according to the sovereign will of God. No man deserves it. We also see that when the Spirit works sovereignly, the Spirit's work brings forth evidence. You know, we'll never see the wind. We can see things flowing through the air, as it were, carried by the wind, but we don't see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind. We don't see the wind. You know, you have people today who says, I see the Spirit of God. And we say, well, one thing we know right away is you're a false teacher. No one sees the Spirit of God. But we can say, I see the work of the Spirit. That's what Christ is getting at. You see the effect of the wind. It's blowing as it were, as He personifies it where it desires. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it comes or where it goes. So it is with the Spirit. You can't see what He Himself is doing, but you can see His effect. And what is the primary effect of the Spirit? Giving life It brings a sinner to turn from sin unto God in faith upon Jesus Christ. This is the evidence of the Spirit's work. It's not emotions. It's not tears. It's not words of promise, though those may accompany these things. It's not a reformed life, though that will accompany it. It's preeminently one, as Christ goes on to say, trusting upon the Lord Jesus Christ and turning unto God. That's the preeminent evidence of the Spirit's work. Well, we'll consider those more fully, but as we close, here is, for every believer here, something to come under with enjoyment and praise. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say it this way, The only reason that you do so is because in mercy and grace, the sovereign, divine Spirit of God, in accordance to the will of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, worked in your life for no worth of yourself, only by His grace to give sight to your eyes, life to your soul, that you would see and understand the Gospel and embrace the same by faith. You came to Christ because the Spirit came to you. It's not the opposite. It's not that you came to Christ so the Spirit came to you. You were first worked upon by the Spirit. And that's what then caused you to come to Christ. This then should be an extreme cause of praise that God has worked so graciously. The obvious opposite is needed for us though as well. That if we are an unbeliever, here is a cause 
for you to despair of every effort of yourself, of every attempt to compare yourself before God and say, this is why, this is why, this is why. But rather to come under this and say, oh God, except you give life, I shall justly perish for my sin. So what should we do? Do we just resolve to do nothing? No. We, as we'll see, take up the means, but we don't lean upon the means. We ever cry out, O God of mercy, give life, give life, cause me to see, cause me to enter in. And isn't there comfort in this? That again and again, Christ shows Himself a compassionate one to answer such requests and petitions. So we abase ourselves before God and we acknowledge if you give me not life, there's no help for me. So I appeal to you alone that you would indeed work upon my soul. And if He does, it will be solely and everlastingly to His praise alone for His saving work in your life, giving you faith and repentance that you would trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?